Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Christopher. Uh, I live and work in the neighborhood. My wife and our three young kids have been attending Northview for about a year and a half. And um, we got connected with a community group led by the Hoffers and now the Lunds. And that's who I am. As far as why I'm here is to read the scripture this morning. Uh, so uh, please, if you'd like to read along, navigate in your Bible to Ephesians 5, verse 18. We will start at the end of verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Lord. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to yourselves, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Good morning. Uh, my name is James. For those that are new here or watching online, I'm one of the pastors here. and It is a joy to be able to enter back into the letter of Ephesians. All right, so uh, start with a story. There was a story about a South African mine worker who worked in this huge mine. And uh, in the final year of his retirement, Every day he would leave the mine, the entrance, through the guardhouse with his wheelbarrow full of sand. And as he came, he'd bring this wheelbarrow full of sand, and, and the guards were sure he was trying to smuggle out diamonds in it. And so they'd comb through it very carefully and say, hey, what are you trying to steal? And he's like, nothing. It's just a wheelbarrow full of sand. They'd go through it very, very carefully, looking for any rocks or diamonds, couldn't find anything. Like, I guess you're free to go, and they'd let the guy through. The next day he'd come and do the same thing, and then the next day they'd say, each time the guards were just confused. Like, what is this guy doing? What's he trying to take? And then finally, on the, he would do this day after day, and on the final day of his retirement, he comes again after a year of doing this with another wheelbarrow full of sand. And the guards are convinced, surely this has all been a ruse to be able to kind of get them ready so they wouldn't take it seriously. And clearly now he must be stealing something. So they went through the sand again and again and again. Couldn't find anything. So confused and frustrated. They said, I guess there's nothing here. I, I guess you can go through. But the guard says, before you do, can you just tell me, what have you been stealing? I mean, clearly you're doing something shady. We haven't been able to find it out. I promise I won't even turn you in. I just got to know. My curiosity is going to be, what have you been stealing? We can't find anything. And the mine worker looks at him. He says, wheelbarrows. <laughs> right? He says, I've got a side business of selling used wheelbarrows. I've been able to take one home every single day. You see, the focus was on such a narrow thing, and they got so obsessed with looking through the sand that they missed out on the bigger picture. The guy was taking wheelbarrows. And so often, that's what we do with Scripture, right? We, we're stuck on rifling through, looking for the rocks, and trying to find all this stuff, and we completely miss out on the wheelbarrow, the main point that the Bible's trying to make, or the bigger point staring right at us. And today, we're going to be looking at what's considered a very controversial passage. It's possible, just even in, in Chris reading that passage, that some of you, specifically the, the women among us, maybe there's a negative reaction to that passage, just in reading some of that in the way that maybe it's been used in the past. And I've had many people tell me, even preparing for this week, even a month or so ago, even some people even six months ago, they're like, oh, what are you, we can't wait till you get to that submit to women part, or wives submit to your husband parts, or, 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 or we can't wait to see how you're going to handle that, as though it's I'm like walking some kind of tightrope and I can fall on the left side or the right side, as people know that on this subject, I can get in a lot of trouble. And the truth is, I felt more stress in this message than many in recent history, because I know this is such a controversial thing. 
And we can get so caught up in the sand that we miss the giant wheelbarrow, the main point that Paul is trying to make here, and the entire context. And so I want to take a few minutes and look at the context of this passage. Because the context for this passage today doesn't start in Ephesians. It actually, in many ways, starts back in the Gospel of John. A passage we looked at on Easter where the night that Jesus is arrested, he's having a meal with his disciples and he washes their feet. And after doing that, he gives them a new command that says this. So now I'm giving you a new commandment, he says. Love each other just as I have loved you, so you should love each other. So Jesus ramps it up and it's a new commandment, not the one from Leviticus, the one love one another as as you love yourself. But now it's a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. With the same sacrificial love, Jesus is saying, that he loves us when he dies on the cross. Now, why do I say this is the context for this passage? Because this is the foundation of all of Paul's understanding of the calling of Christians. He comes back to it so frequently in this letter and in others. And so as we're looking at this passage today, I want to say there's nothing new here in this passage. This isn't a new concept that he's introducing. It's not a different message. Everything Paul is saying is coming out of this basic understanding of what Jesus has said, to love God and love one another as he loves us. And so as we get into this, remember that this entire letter is about increasingly living and loving like Jesus, that we are called to actually love one another like Christ loves us. And so in the first half of the letter that we've looked at a number of months ago, that, that it shows everything that Christ has done for the believers. And the second half is how now, how are the Christians to live now that they are in Christ? And so this basically, the whole second half of the letter answers that question. How should Christians live now that they are in Christ? And, and he gives a number of answers for it. And he starts right in chapter 4, verse 1. And he says, walk worthy of your calling. And spends a whole chapter giving examples of that. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, be imitators of God. In the next verse, in chapter 5, verse 2, he literally quotes Jesus, and he says, we are to actually live in love like Jesus, to live, like, or, sorry, to, to live the way that Jesus li- lives, and to love like he loves. We're to actually love one another the way that he's loved us. And then he's going to get really specific in the next one and show what that looks like. And he says, don't get drunk in wine, but in verse 18, he says, be filled with the Spirit. And so now he's going to break that down and say, so what does that look like to be filled with the Spirit? This was the message a couple weeks ago where he gives these four participles linked to it. And he says, number one, it's speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Number two, it's singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. Number three, it's giving thanks. And number four, it's submitting to one another in Christ. And so today we're going to look at that last one, submitting to one another in Christ. Where he says... in. Some of the translations say submit to one another, but in the Greek language would actually say submitting because it's a continuation of this idea. It's not just a one-time command. It's this whole idea. This is what a spirit-filled believer's life looks like. And this is how you are filled with the spirit is by submitting one to another. This is how there's evidence of the spirit in your life, and it's also how you are filled with the spirit. And in that, he's actually going to give three categories that he's going to show in this one. And and the ancient philosopher Aristotle called these three categories the household code. And it's often used later on as kind of these three ways that we wouldn't necessarily describe as families. You'll see why. But this is how it was understood at that time in that culture. And so he's going to apply this idea to these three separate categories. First, he's going to describe it submitting to one another with wives and husbands. Then with children and parents. And then with slaves and masters. And so we can see in this text, and I I want to emphasize here, that what Paul is saying, there is nothing new here. 
Paul is just taking the teachings of Jesus and he's applying it to the Ephesians in the different contexts of their lives. And he does it throughout, all throughout this letter. And it's, again, it's nothing new. He's going to take the idea of loving one another and he's going to emphasize now, he's going to call that mutual submission, right? To love one another, to submit to one another. And then he will apply that to multiple aspects of family life. Now, a problem arises in the context when we think he's writing directly to us today. If we take it like it's written to Seattle in 2023, sometimes we can get a little messed up, messed up in our understanding of what Paul is saying because some may say, you know, you know, wives submit to your husbands. That seems so outdated today. Doesn't Paul realize that we are a, we are a, a society of equals? We, how dare he un- try to undermine the equality between men and women? Doesn't he realize that women are empowered in today's culture? We don't need that kind of language. And doesn't he know the damage that these words might do in the centuries and millennia in the future? But again, the thing to remember is that we can't just take a rest message from the, the first century in the Middle, in the middle East and in, in Europe and in, in modern-day Turkey and ancient Asia Minor and just apply it directly to us. Other than a small passage, a prayer in John 17 where Jesus literally prays for us, the rest of Scripture was not actually written directly to us. We were not the intended recipients. It was written to people thousands of years ago. And so we must, in, in the study of the Scriptures, first understand what did it mean to them, then that we can apply to our lives today. And so 2,000 years ago, Asia Minor, not surprisingly, was a very different place than it is today in the Seattle in 2023. It was a radically different place. At that time, the view of family was very different. The value and role of women was completely different. In that time, a man had complete legal authority over their family. Complete legal authority. His family was like his property. He could divorce his wife for any reason. A a father could even have capital punishment upon their kids for any reason they so desire. There was nothing stopping them. Complete authority. And, And you see this power even over divorce in the letter of Matthew 19 as Jesus is responding to the Pharisees. The Pharisees ask Jesus and say whether a man can divorce his wife for any reason at all. And they're trying to trap him in this case. Because back then, a man could divorce his wife for burning the bread, for not having sex enough, for for no longer being as attractive as they used to, or just the man's desires changing, right? It could be for anything. And so Jesus responds in verse 8, and here's what he says. Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it's not what God had originally intended. So they had a lot of leniency in divorce. He's like, no, the only reason that God even allowed that was because you were so hard-hearted that he, he put in some regulation for that. But he says, I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. So Jesus says, no, divorce was never part of God's plan. It was a concession. You can only divorce when there's adultery. Now, then look what happens next. It's not the Pharisees, but Jesus' own disciples. Look how they respond. They spent a couple years with Jesus at this point, and to them being their response to being told that the only way you can divorce is in the case of adultery, not for any reason. They say, if this is the case, it is better not to marry. If that's true, if we can't just divorce for anything we feel like, Jesus' own disciples say, that's too hard. Who would ever want to get married if we can't just send her, send her away if we get tired of her? Right? That was the mindset of even Jesus' disciples. That was the culture at the time. In that time, wives were treated more like property than, than actual per- partners. Multiple ancient writers speak about that the worst plague that Zeus inflicted upon mankind at that point was women. Right? It was this terrible, evil version of women. 
There was a poet from ancient Ephesus, the very city this is written in, and he says, the two best days in a woman's life are when someone marries her and when he carries her dead body to the grave. How sick and evil is that? That literally was one of their own people at the time writing. Here's some other quotes from some famous philosophers of the time. Demosthenes said, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. Right? You see, that's the mentality of what a wife is for, just taking care of those things. Or the, the philosopher Xenophon, he said, it was the husband's aim that a wife might see as little as possible, hear as little as possible, and ask as little as possible. Right? I mean, this is sick, but this was the mentality of marriage back then. In that time, if, you, if a woman was not killed at birth, which was common, they were mostly uneducated. They could not witness in court. They could not adopt. They could not make a contract. They could not own property. They could not inherit. Both Aristotle and the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, who you hear of a lot because he was alive during this time and wrote a ton, both of them said, and I quote, in all respects, a woman is inferior to man. In all respects. When girls married, usually around 15 or 16 years old, they were expected to take their husband's religion. They were not considered their own person. They were an extension of that. They were, women were always under the authority of a male, initially from their father and eventually from their husbands. That's just the way the culture was. So this letter is being written into a vastly different culture than today. So when you consider that culture and you read what Paul writes what he says is insane of how radical what he's saying is. So Paul begins in verse 21 and says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is how he begins the section. Everything after, all the way to halfway through chapter, through chapter 6, is coming out of this command. And if you don't understand this command, you're not going to get the rest of the chapter. Paul is saying that this is what it looks like to be a spirit-filled Christian. In fact, this is how you become spirit-filled and more spirit-filled. You are submitting one to another is what he says. Why, he says? Out of reverence for Christ. Because this is of how amazing Christ is and what he's done. This is how you are to live. So, but who is supposed to be submitting to who in verse 21? Which group of people are submitting to which group of people? He says, one to another. It's very broad. He's speaking to the entire church. The body of Christ must submit to other members of the body of Christ. They are to live in mutual submission. Now, do you think this is how the Ephesians understood what submission looked like in their culture? Not a chance. Do you think they saw submission as a mutual act by all believers to all believers? Heck no. In that culture, submission only went one direction, up. Slaves submitted to masters. Children submitted to parents. Wives submitted to husbands. Soldiers submitted to commanders. That was the only understanding. But Paul here says they must submit one to another. And the word submit comes from a soldier's understanding. It's to align under, or so, to be subject under, to serve under. And Paul says the followers of Jesus must humbly, in love, serve one another. They must defer to one another. They must mutually submit to one another. So how do you think this is going to gel with the culture at the time? This is insane. It's radical. It's almost as radical as Jesus' teachings. Pick up your cross and follow me. The first will be last and 
the last will be first. You see, there was no grid for this kind of teaching anywhere outside of the teachings of Jesus. There was no one in the culture around the world who had any concept of this idea of the mutuality of love and submission within a culture. John Calvin, the great reformer of the 16th century, writes about it this way. He's commenting on this passage in his, his commentary on Ephesians. He says, God has bound us so strongly to each other that no man ought to endeavor to avoid subjection or submission. And where love reigns, mutual services will be rendered. We can all develop a consistent attitude of submissiveness, actively submitting to others when it's appropriate, even as they actively submit to us on occasion. This is radical. It was even radical in the time of John Calvin. We are called to mutually submit to one another. And this isn't just for wives, it's not just for children, and it's not just for slaves. This is for everyone in the body of Christ. This is how Paul says we are filled with the Spirit, as we voluntarily serve one another and love one another with love and humility. Amen? So should this come as a surprise? Is this a shocking new idea in Paul's letters? No. It's Jesus says the same thing many times. The entire letter of Ephesians has been saying this again and again and again, that this is how we are to live as followers of Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. He says, serve one another humbly in love. And that serve is actually the word for slave. Be a slave to one another humbly in love. He has said it again and again, but it's radically countercultural. I mean, speaking into a patriarchal society, where slavery was a regular part of the family life, where children were treated like slaves, women like property, and to tell these people, submit to one another, that is insane. For him to say in the next verse, wives submit to your husbands, that's not radical at all. Right? Some people may bristle when they hear that, but that's just stating the obvious into the culture. There is no one at that time who ever heard that phrase, wives submit to your husband, who batted an eye. That was beyond clear in the culture. I heard someone once say, no one would have responded with, huh? They would have just responded with, duh, right? There's, there's no, di- like that was just plain obvious in the culture at the time. But to say submit to one another, that's crazy. Because yes, it includes slaves to masters and children to parents. But also that would include masters to slaves, parents to children. And yes, even husbands to wives. Outside of the teachings of Jesus, there was no grid for this kind of teaching. Only a follower of Jesus at that time could make any sense of this. You see, this kind of a submission, it's not obedience. There's actually a different word used for for obedience, and he uses that word later when he says, children, obey your parents. This kind of submission is motivated by a love of Jesus. It's modeled by Jesus, and it leads to a humbling of oneself, to a lifestyle of serving one another in love. In short, it's living and loving like Jesus. Following his example. This is how Jesus lived, and we are to follow his example. In fact, this is exactly what Paul says Jesus does in chapter 2 of of Philippians. Let's go there. He says, in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, notice the similarity, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So Paul is saying here, walk in humility, seek the good of others over your own, humbly serve one another. Basically, he's saying, submit to one another. Then he says this in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset that Christ has. There it is. He's saying, be like Jesus. 
Love like Jesus. Follow Jesus' example. And then what is Jesus' example? Here it is, verse 6. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God to be used to his own advantage. Rather, Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Again, that word servant is slave, is a better translation. Being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus served us. He became a slave for us. Jesus submitted to humanity. He gave his life for us. He died for us. And that's how Paul says we are to live for one another. Submit to one another, live and love like Jesus. Have we seen anything like this in the letter of Ephesians yet? I mean, the entire second half is this message over and over and over again. Basically, it's saying over and over again, it says, be rooted and grounded in love, imitate Jesus, love like Jesus, walk in love. I mean, this is not a new message. It's the same message he keeps preaching over and over again. So why are we to submit to one another? Why should we do this? Because Jesus did it for us, and we are called to follow his example. Again, right there in chapter 2, verse 6, let's look at it again. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, meaning to hold on to. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There it is. That's the example that we are called to follow. As Christ humbled himself like a slave in the incarnation and crucifixion, we should be humbling ourselves like slaves in our relationships with one another. That's the example he gives. This is how we are to live as followers of Jesus. This is not easy, obviously. We need the Holy Spirit, and we will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. But if you think that's hard today, if you're immediately moving to your context, it would have been 10,000 times more difficult for the original readers. I mean, imagine in their context the mindset shift required to be able to obey this 2,000 years ago. I mean, that's why people didn't understand Jesus. Jesus' kingdom is completely upside down. It made no sense to the culture back then, and the truth is, in so many ways, it makes no sense to us today. And this command is what sets the bar for the rest of this section all through halfway through chapter 6. And if you miss this, the rest of the chapter will be completely misunderstood. Okay, so to recap, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, and that looks like loving one another, praising God, being grateful, and submitting to one another. And who should be submitting to who, is what he says. Slaves to masters, yes, and thereby masters to slaves. Children to parents, yes, and parents to children. Wives to husbands, yes, and husbands to wives. You know, I've had a number of people tell me since I've taken this role as pastor, they've Remember people sat down and said, James, you know what? I I submit to you as my pastor, like as a place of honor. I say, thank you. I'm deeply honored by that. But my response is always, and I submit to you, right? Because that's what this is saying. It's not just a one-way street. I submit to you as a fellow brother and sister in Christ. Like, this is not something special just because I have a title. This is radical, and it's foundational in the church. And I think a lot of us don't really get how significant this is. And if we don't get it, there's almost no point in moving on because the rest of it is going to be read from whatever grid, whatever group you identify, instead of recognizing you're going to get stuck in the sand instead of seeing the wheelbarrow. But this is about loving one another in mutual submission. And I say that because the very next verse 
for some reason, often creates like some kind of temporary exegetical insanity when we come to it in some circles. We just yank it completely from the context. And it's often been turned into a, a hammer of put women in their place or to give insecure men some kind of excuse to be chauvinists. And I was preparing for this week, and I, was, I often I'll listen to a couple sermons by some well-known preachers around teaching on the topic I'm on. And this past week, I was listening to one. And just in the first part that I listened to, the pastor used four different incredibly sexist and demeaning jokes about women while teaching through this passage. And that was just the first part before I turned it off because I was disgusted. In, in a passage that is supposed to be about speaking of the incredible worth and the dignity and the value of women, a pastor used it as an opportunity to make four incredibly sexist jokes. The first one, a stupid joke about how women can't drive, and then another one about women always nagging. And it just grieved my heart. In the midst of speaking about this, we just can't get away from some of the garbage that is out there. I mean, I couldn't believe it, but yet this is some of the garbage that a lot of women in the church have been dealing with their whole lives when people misunderstand and misapply what this text is saying. Instead, we are called to mutual submission, which is even greater than being called to equality. I love this quote from Dr. Snodgrass in his commentary on Ephesians. He says this, he says, Our society emphasizes equality, but mutual submission is a much stronger idea. With equality, you still have a battle of rights. Equality can exist without love but it will not create a Christian community. With mutual submission, we give up rights and support each other. Mutual submission is love in action. It brings equal valuing and is the power by which a Christian community establishes itself. In the end, submission is nothing other than humility and the self-giving love of Christ. That's powerful. In fact, I put that in one of the weekly discussion questions. If you go on our website under messages and then sermon resources, you'll find that as long as all the other slides, though I'll be honest, Margaret's out of town this week, and so it'll be up tomorrow when she gets back. Um, no one else has access to the back end, we learned this week. Um, all right. So verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then verse 22 says, wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. And sadly, again, this is the verse that often causes so much harm in women's lives over the years. This one verse has brought so much evil and pain when it's wielded as a club. And it's insane because this is a passage about humility and service and love and unity. Yet so often it gets weaponized against women, diminishing their worth and their role. Yet nowhere in this passage, hear this, is a husband's authority, nowhere in this passage is a husband's authority described in terms of obedience power or control over their wife that is never the context ever used here in fact it's the exact opposite as we're going to see next week when he tells husbands to love their wives as christ loved the church and so what's so crazy about this actually is that verse 22 actually does not say wives submit to your husbands that's not what it says when you go back to the greek here's what it says submitting to one another out of reverence for christ literally it's translated as wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice what word's missing there. It doesn't actually say, wives, submit to your husbands. What it says in the original language is wives as to the Lord, or sorry, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. And what it's doing in the Greek is what it's saying is there's no word submit there, is it's referring back to verse 21. And so it's not a special command for the wives. He's saying just submit to, he says, submit one to another, and wives also do that thing that we just talked about doing to one another, do that to your husbands also, right? That's what the Greek, the original language is saying that Paul wrote. So it's not a special command just for the wives, he's just giving an emphasis to them. 
And, and you see how it's kind of crazy sometimes when we harp on wives submit, because any, any husband that says, wife, you must submit, what they're actually saying is they're saying the very same thing to themselves because the word submit there actually is one to another. That's the context of it. So anyone saying wives submit is actually saying, and I will submit to you because that's the context of the passage. To any degree you ever use that, you're actually speaking to yourself as a husband. You can't separate them. And this isn't the first time that Paul has said this. In 1 Corinthians, Paul spoke to husbands and wives and gave them equal authority over one another's bodies and called upon them to serve one another. There's this insane passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and here's what it says. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights. I chose a translation with, for more appropriate younger children. Um, and likewise, his wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do you realize what that just said? There was no concept of mutual love in marriages prior to this time in, in the world. That did not exist. No woman had rights of any kind, let alone, unless they were of the elite status, and then it was very limited, let alone a right to sexual satisfaction and conjugal rights. I mean, this is insane that Paul wrote this about a woman's rights to sexual satisfaction to a marriage 2,000 years ago in a Middle Eastern context. That just did not exist at that time. The culture did not even value women. Yet today in many Christian marriages 2,000 years later, and we're so progressive, twisted teachings on marriage continue to plague couples today that only value a man's conjugal rights. I mean, that's crazy that Paul wrote that 2,000 years ago, that a woman has authority over her husband's body as well as him having authority over her. Honestly, if someone today looks at these passages that are written here and says, you know, how could Paul have been so repressive of women's rights? I mean, we have equal, equality and, and rights today. I mean, how could Paul have been so misogynistic towards that culture? The question is, where do you think those rights come from that we have today? They didn't come from a vacuum. No ancient cultures gave, people, gave women those rights. It was Jesus who did it, and it was Paul who promoted it. In fact, it was Paul who made the most crazy countercultural statement in flushing out Jesus' teachings to the Galatians in chapter 3, 28. He says this, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. The progress of women's liberation and equality is completely rooted in the life and teachings of Jesus. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Okay, so I've, I spent the majority of the time today looking at the first half of this passage because it sets the tone for what's to come. And it's the lens by which we interpret everything else. But I want to look briefly at the next two verses. We're going to come back to them next week, but I want to touch on them. So 23, he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, the body which he is the Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Now, we're not going to be able to do justice to this today, and, and there are a ton of interpretations and so much controversy on how to apply this one, but the main question that arises out of this passage is, what does it mean for the husband to be the head? And we're to come back to this next week when we, when we explore what it means for a husband to love their wife like Christ loved the church. Because we're going to see that every single thing spoken to the husband in this passage is about being a servant, to sacrificially love their wife. Again, not a single statement is made that gives them control or obedience or power. But the opposite, it's sacrificial love and service in this passage. So in looking at the meaning of head, there's a ton of debates among scholars on this stuff. And you can read endless, endless commentaries on this and just get spun up in a circle because there's so many points of view. 
But there's far more time, things to look at that we have time for today. But the, head, the word head actually has multiple usages in Greek, just like it does in English. At times, kephale is the Greek word there, that in Greek it means leadership authority, and often means that. At other times, it means more like source, like the head of a river. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 27 says, God has put all things under the authority of Christ and made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. Clearly in that usage, that's in a meaning of head as authority, right? That's what it is. He's put all things under the authority of Christ. But then in chapter 4, just a chapter before this, he says, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head. That's Jesus. From him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. So here he's speaking of Jesus as the head, but it's actually more like the source that promotes growth of the body. So while there's a clear leadership role referenced here in this passage, I want to emphasize yet again, it is not a leadership role of power, of control, or demanded obedience. It is entirely one of sacrificial love and in humility. Read it again, over and over again. There is no room in this passage for the diminishing the value and the role of women. There is none. In fact, it does the opposite. It's about mutual submission. What Paul is describing is that a spirit-filled marriage is a submission competition. Right? That's what it's summarized as. A wife can joyfully submit to her husband because the husband sacrificially loves her. And vice versa. Someone... This does not mean that in submission, it doesn't mean that someone is a doormat or that a wife is a doormat. Paul even told the Galatians at that time that he did not submit to teachers. So it doesn't mean always submitting. In Galatians 2.5, Paul says this, we did not give up and submit to those people for even a moment. That's referring to the false teachers. So it's not submitting to everyone in all ways at all times. And I want to repeat this again. Submission does not mean being a doormat. But yet if you've been a Christian for very long, especially if you're a woman. When this passage has been addressed to you over the years, does it come across in a way that promotes a deep sense of loving one another in humility? Or is it usually completely one-sided? And sadly, from my experience, and the experience of most of the women I know, it usually comes across as, woman, submit. The majority of the time I see this passage addressed, it lacks all, it lacks all love, all context, of the letter of Ephesians, and it completely misses the heart from which Paul speaks. It's just ripped from the context. But the difficult reality today is that not just because of this, for many other reasons, but so many Christian marriages today experience domestic abuse. Whether it's physical, sexual, emotional, psychological, whether it's everything from hitting to gaslighting, it's real. There's so many books and studies out there that show that this is a massive problem within the church. And while there's some studies that show the nuance that the more a, a husband actually follows Jesus, the, the less likely he is for abuse, most of the studies that are out there paint a really scary picture. Where about 18% of men who I, or, or people who identify as Christians are involved or experiencing domestic abuse. I mean, just Google domestic violence in Christianity or don't because it's really discouraging. There's a book by James and Phyllis Alstroff a few years back called uh, battered into submission, a terrifying book that just lays out in horrifying detail all the distorted ways in which the abusive interpretation of this passage has led to so much pain and trauma in marriages. And sadly, this isn't just an issue for the Ephesians. It's just as relevant for us today. And what that also means is it's more than likely that this is a reality in some marriages that are even present here today or watching online. Remember, abuse is not just physical violence. 
It takes many forms, psychological, especially in the forms of gaslighting and manipulating and pressuring, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, of pushing for a spouse to do things they're not comfortable with or beyond what they're comfortable. And it's not right. Paul is addressing this specific issue exactly, that we must be different from the world. We must exemplify the love of Christ to one another and to the world. Over and over and over, Paul has told the Ephesians, we are one, one baptism, one faith, one Lord, one new creation. Therefore, he says, love one another. That is our calling. Submit to one another. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And it's a powerful call for the entire church to lay down their lives for one another. For men to love their wives just like Jesus loved them. For wives to love and respect their husbands just like Jesus loved them. And if you're a single or a widow, the message doesn't change. It applies the same because Paul was single. Jesus was single. And they're the examples that he's constantly using. And so it applies the same regardless. We must humbly and sacrificially love one another, considering the interests of others above our own. Jesus is lifted up as the example of self-sacrificial love that we are to model. That is what submission looks like. What does submission look like? Look at Jesus. That is our model. No partner is singled out in this or belittled. All are called to imitate Jesus, as he said in chapter 5, verse 1, when it says, literally, imitate God and love like him. So an application, then. Let's not get so focused on the sand that we lose sight of the wheelbarrow as we go through this. We are called to submit one to another. There are a thousand ways going through this passage can get sidetracked into digging into the sand, whether it be debates on roles or authority or complementarianism versus egalitarianism. And those are all great discussions and have value, but they miss Paul's main point. A spirit-filled believer lives a life like Jesus, humbly submitting to one another. That is our calling as Christians. And therefore, a spirit-filled marriage is a submission competition. It's out-submitting one another to seek to humbly love. A wife can joyfully submit to the husband because the husband is joyfully, humbly sacrificing for the wife. And it's this incredible picture that Paul gives of a spirit-filled marriage. And so for those who are married, is this what our marriages look like? Would you identify this? Do we see our marriages as the front line in the battle to live in love like Jesus? Or like most married couples, do we see the real battle being out there, not in our marriage? And we overlook the the most important place where this battle is actually fought, right in the home. If you are married, our marriage is the most important battlefield, the most important place where this must play out day in and day out to actively live and love like Jesus, to joyfully, humbly submit and love to one another. And it's not easy because no one knows us better. No one can hurt us more. No one has any idea how to influence the way that our spouse does. And especially when our marriage isn't in a healthy place. And sadly, sometimes it's easier to humbly serve someone other than our spouse. Especially when there's been tension and we get proud. When we feel wronged or feel they've done something to offend us. We can be unwilling to humble ourselves and lovingly serve one another because we feel that would give them more power and and give us a weaker position. And so we keep waiting for them to change, for them to humble themselves. But what we see is that we are called to do this. Husbands and wives, we can't wait for our spouse to begin or for them to start. It begins with us. We must take the lead in this. 
And I've had wives tell me, I'll submit when my husband's worthy of submitting to. And there's a problem with that because that's never going to happen. The only person worthy of submission is Jesus. No one else is worthy of it. And praise God, this command is not based upon our worthiness. It's based upon the worthiness of Jesus. That's what it's basing it upon. Out of reverence for Christ. Not out of reverence for my spouse. Not out of reverence for a husband or a wife. Out of reverence for Christ. It's based upon his example. And so, if there is not freedom in your marriage right now to mutually submit to one another without fear, without freedom, please seek help right away. There is nothing more important than this. Your marriage is too important to allow bitterness and resentment to fester. There are so many good counselors out there. You know, Sarah and I, we do marriage counseling every six weeks. We've been doing it for years, and we're going to do it indefinitely. Now, we save some money because we use our marriage counselor back in South Africa, the one we got back from back home, and so it's a fraction of the price. We do it via Zoom every, two, every six weeks on a Tuesday morning. It's like clockwork, and we just do that whether we need it or not, and we actually have a really healthy marriage. It's not like, oh, no, what's going on with them? No, we're actually in a great space, and we just do it every six weeks just to make sure that there's nothing small that gets bigger in a place of communication, and we're going to do that for as long as we live, hopefully. But we do it to address anything because we know it matters the way in which we humbly love one another. And if you recognize that you're not in that place of a beautiful, free, mutually submissive marriage where you're able to genuinely, humbly serve and love one another, please seek out help. If you want to get marriage counseling, there's, there's a ton available locally. But if you want to get it on the cheap with the great counselors, come talk to me. I can hook you up. I've already got tons of people now counseling out of South Africa. Um, and Because uh, it's just over Zoom. It makes no difference. Why, why not make, take advantage of great Christian counseling down there? Um, we're happy to hook you up. And I rec- can't recommend enough, even if your marriage is doing good. Our marriage is fantastic. So you, want to ask me? you can ask my wife. We have a great marriage. But if you want it to get even better, there's nothing more worth your time and your money. And I can, let me just finish with this in talking to married couples. If there is any abuse in your marriage of any kind, please seek help immediately. Come after service, talk to one of our pastoral staff, email us this week, talk to someone, get help. Do not allow for any kind of abuse in marriage. Whether it's physical, sexual, psychological, mental, emotional, spiritual, doesn't matter. Do not leave room for that. It will suck you away and destroy your life. Do not allow that. And so if you're married, we're going to finish with, with, with two homework questions that I want you to take out your phone and take a picture of. And I want you to have a date night. The homework for this week, the application is for married couples, have a date night. Or Sarah and I, we do date ends where we put the kids on a movie in another room and then we, with, di- with dino nuggets usually, and then we go into the other room and just have 90 minutes of peace. And do a date in or out, whatever it is this week, and ask one another these two questions. I feel most loved by you when you blank. How is it you're trying to understand they actually receive love from what you're doing? And it very likely will be different than what you think. And two, what is one specific way I could grow in humbly serving you in love? Please take a picture of that if you're married and do that this week. This isn't a joke. Do it. Like, actually do it. Actually take some time with your spouse and don't make it a 30-second, hey, answer this question. Sit down and actually ask, how can I actually do this? How do I learn to love you in ways that you receive love? As we're talking about next week, we're called to love one another the way that Christ loves us, not the way we want to be loved. You're going to see there's a massive difference between loving one another and the golden rule of the way that I want to be treated. That doesn't work in a marriage. Because if I love Sarah the way I want to be treated, that's not very loving to her. 
right? If she loves me the way that she wants to be treated, she's going to buy me chocolate and I hate chocolate. That's not very loving to me at all, right? That's, there's a lot of things I want more than chocolate in our marriage. So please, take that seriously and spend some time with your spouse. And then if you're not married, this isn't just a message for married couples. It's the primary context, but it applies just as much. Regardless of whether you're married, single, divorced, widow, the message is still the same. Am I selfishly looking to others to meet my needs? Or am I as a fellow, as a body, a member of the body of Christ, actively saying, Lord, how do I humbly love those around me and serve those around me? Is it, am, I, am I in curvatu sensei and just looking, it's all about me? Or am I actually opening up and saying, Lord, use me to, to bless those and love those around me? Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you for your word. Even when it's challenging, or especially when it's challenging. And I recognize this is not necessarily an easy teaching. It's, it's hard to actually begin to rewire and think, what does it mean for me to humbly serve and love others, even above my own interests? And one of the hardest contexts for that is actually marriage. It should be the easiest, but oftentimes it's the hardest. And so, Jesus, I just pray for us this week and beyond. Soften our hearts. Help us to genuinely love one another. May husbands grow with their leadership gift of humbly serving. and May wives grow with their gifts and humbly submissing, submitting, Lord Jesus. May we grow in what it means to have a submission competition of spirit-filled believers experiencing your life. Challenge us, Lord. Draw us deeper. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for how wonderful and incredible your love for us is. What a joy it is to experience your life and your love, Lord. And Jesus, empower us to not just receive it, but to pour it back into those around us, to those we care about, to those around us, specifically into our marriages and our families and those of closest relationships. Give us the courage and the boldness, Lord, to lovingly submit to one another, to see our roles as not just places of power, but places of humility and service and and loving of one another. Jesus, empower us by your Spirit to pour our lives into those around us. And Jesus, give boldness to married couples this week to ask those questions to address those things, Father. I pray for boldness for those that are wrestling in their marriage right now. Lord, may you put a holy discontent within those marriages, a holy discontent to say that this is not okay. I'm not okay being married to a roommate. I'm not okay just living with someone. I'm not okay tolerating someone. But I want to move in life and beauty and incredible joy with this life part with this person that you've called me to, that I'm in covenant with, where we are one. Jesus, give boldness to couples this week. Let me pray. Amen. Amen. If that's you, please, if you're having an issue, please speak to someone this week. If you're wrestling, if there's any abuse, please find someone to speak to. Please come and talk to us. The staff, if there's abuse, if any of the pastors, we would love to talk with you and seek about getting help. All right? Amen. Next week, we'll be looking at 
the other side of this picture, the more fuller picture, what does it mean for husbands to genuinely love their wives as Christ loved the church? It is such an incredible picture in Scripture. The longest place anywhere in Scripture where it talks about marriage and the way for husbands to love. And it's going to be a beautiful message, not my words, but from Scripture, of what God has to say to us as husbands and as families. Amen. See you guys next week. God bless.